0: All right, team, welcome back to Fast Keto. Thank you so much for being here with us again for the second time on the show. It's great to have you back.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I'm glad to talk with you and uh, glad to catch up.
0: How are things going where you are? Tell us a little bit about where you are in the world and how things are going there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I'm in, in Estonia and uh, things are pretty normal here uh, for the time being we did have like a minor let's say outbreak uh, during the uh, spring but the summer has been uh, pretty normal there's no like uh, lockdowns uh, there's no like real restrictions uh, aside from you can't organize like large events but uh, other than that that's uh, everything is uh, relatively normal and uh, i'm uh, living actually like on an island so i'm uh, even more isolated from the rest of the world, so yeah, my kind of everyday life isn't um, affected uh, at all. Uh, so I'll, I'll still get to do like in my work and uh, create content.
0: That's awesome. Well, you and I first met in a really cool location at Biohackers Summit, and I think that was maybe in 2017 or 2018. A couple of something, years,
1: yeah, three three years ago or something, yeah.
0: And uh, I remember you did an interview with me there, and then you've gone on to be a regular speaker there. So for anyone who's listening who may not be familiar with your work, maybe give us just a quick background on yourself and what you primarily focus on.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I you know cover uh, a lot about uh, the nutrition and general this biohacking theme of how do you improve your uh, health uh, per- and performance with the different kinds of strategies I've uh, written the last book that we talked about was Melabolic Atzavaji that talks about intermittent fasting and atzavaji. I also talked, uh, like created a new book, uh, Stronger by Stress, which is uh, mostly focused on uh, stress adaptation and this uh, aspect of hormesis, of how do you use uh, different dietary strategies as well as uh, other, you know, uh, activities to uh, increase your resilience against stress and actually uh, benefit from it. But mostly I do like uh, writing, uh, speaking and uh, I have a youtube channel and just uh, create content
0: so i know we touched on this a little bit before but what is it that sparked your interest in biohacking and i know when we met you kind of were into keto i'm not sure if you still are but what kind of sparked your interest in all of that
1: well uh, it had to do mostly with uh my own uh, personal uh interest of wanting to be healthier wanting to be better performing and to just increase my performance in both physical as uh, as well as mental so, I don't have like any um, health uh, background or the health disaster in the past. I've been relatively healthy all my life. It was just uh, wanting to um, optimize uh, that I do and uh, just kind of reach uh, my full potential um, as a human being.
0: You know, I think that's so cool because I find that a lot of us come to the space because we have a particular strong motivating factor. And it's, Really hard if you don't have some kind of motivation like a sickness or an illness or maybe you're overweight or something, but I really admire people who come to this space just because they're maximizers and optimizers, and they just want to optimize the way they live. I think that's so cool,
1: yeah, yeah like i th- I think uh, a lot of the times people make um, changes to their life if they get hit with some sort of a disease or some some other accident. Uh, But I think like the smarter way of going about it is to uh, do do those things in advance uh, before you get uh, sick, because uh, it's harder to uh, get well if you're already sick compared to uh, like stay well if you're already, you know, relatively healthy.
0: Yes, I agree. Now, I want to get into autophagy a little bit because I know it's a subject that you have researched extensively and you wrote an entire book on it. Fantastic book. And it is just very well researched. There's a lot of information in there. So what are some surprising things that you learned about autophagy in all of your research for the book?
1: Well, I think um, the uh, biggest thing that, um, that I did learn and other people don't really Let's say no is that uh, autophagy is not just this garbage disposal system that the kind of superficial understanding is that it uh, makes you live longer and kind of eliminates this junk material. Well, it it can do that to a certain extent, uh, but it also is involved with uh, almost every other process in the body. Like it's involved in the immune system; it eliminates you know pathogens, uh, viruses, as well as uh, like even fat burning is involved it's involved in um eliminating plaque from the brain like the toxic alzheimer's plaque and uh even like uh, regulates uh, glycogen content so it is very central to almost like uh, every process in the body and uh Usually it happens also like to a certain extent all the time, whether or not we need more of it or not uh, depends on like many other factors. So it's not like this, uh, that all autophagy is good all the time. There are times where you don't want to have it and uh, there are times may you want to have it not slightly more, but uh, just uh, it is it's supposed to be this uh, relatively stable process uh, regardless so that you would still want to have like some basal autophagy happening uh, on, on, on like, a regular basis.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. That's one thing, the way that I kind of see it is it's like this recycling program that occurs in your body all the time, but there are things that you can do that will block that natural process. Like if you're eating every two hours, you know, you're going to block that natural process where your body is going to be recycling and well, sort of taking some of the garbage out. But recycling a lot of those proteins and damaged organelles and things, if you're constantly in the fed state, that's one thing that can block it, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like foods and uh, nutrients uh, do uh, directly affect whether or not or how much autophagy are you getting. And uh, there are certain things that will like directly block it, uh, would be like uh, insulin does it, uh, high amounts of carbs would do it high amounts of protein can also do it as well as like you know some other like underlying factors like a vitamin d deficiency can also prevent the formation of these autophagy zones that uh, kind of govern the process of autophagy so yeah like many other things that can uh, make the person experience like a deficient amount of autophagy which which is linked to like a lot of diseases as well as accelerated aging mm-hmm. so you don't want to you know block it uh, completely or at least you don't want to not be able to produce it when needed if that makes sense
0: yeah i mean i like to think of it as if you never took the recycling out and it just started piling up in your garage and then your hallway and then eventually in your whole house if you just never took it out and and that's kind of like a analogy for it that i like to use at your house would just gradually build up with all this waste right
1: yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect uh, analogy. And, uh, yeah, it does essentially describe uh, what, what's going to happen.
0: So what have you found in your research and writing that are some hacks for people or maybe not hacks so much as some of the best ways to get autophagy and, you know, maybe build that into your lifestyle in a manageable, practical way.
1: Yeah. Well, um, the process of a tavaj is uh, regulated a lot by energy balance. So um, if you're in this overabundant state, uh, you have excess energy, then uh, Tavaji is going to be low, whereas if you're slightly energy-deprived, or you're experiencing a physiological stress, then autophagy is going to gradually start to increase. So things that promote autophagy would be like exercise, fasting, calorie restriction does it, ketosis can do it to a certain extent, and uh, like heat, the cold, those things uh, will gradually start to ramp up the uh, process of autophagy. So on a daily basis, uh, what I think you know people would lo- want to do is to just you know, stay physically active, uh, not overeat calories, Maybe do some aspects of this time restricted eating, where they confine the eating window to a certain extent, and uh, yeah, like if they get get access to like a sauna or some uh, something cold, then uh, that that can also be something that to do, like on a daily basis.
0: So let's talk about fasting a little bit more because it seems to be, I want to talk about fasting and then we'll talk about exercise and compare the two. But with fasting in particular, we've seen there's a limited amount of research done on humans and it seems to show you need around 72 hours, something like that to see some of those autophagy markers increase. What do you think of that? What are some of the myths, you know, that you see propagated out there about autophagy and fasting and what is the real way and, you know best way to get it through fasting
1: i actually seen some studies where they show that it uh, appears already within like uh, 16 hours or so but of course like the amount is um much smaller compared to like a three-day fast or something. Uh, Like how much do you need is also like very context-dependent and uh, varies between individuals. But generally, you do start to see uh, a gradual increase in esophage once uh, your uh, liver glycogen has been uh, depleted. And if you do nothing, if you just sit around, then the liver glycogen is going to be depleted by like 16 up to 24 hours. That's when it's going to be relatively low, and that's where you start to produce ketones and uh, manufacturers of these more esophageosomes. But you can also speed this process up as well. Like if you do some exercise, then you're going to deplete the level glycogen even faster. Or if you eat like low carb, then you will also have like a lower buffer zone or you, you have to burn through less glycogen to reach that state. So uh, generally, I think maybe you, you could probably start to see uh, some increased autophagy within like, uh, if you're like very physically active, then you can probably see it within uh, like 14, or 14 hours or so. But uh, yeah, that's some of the timeframe that you can expect.
0: So one of the comparisons that I often make for people is I talk about how just restricting carbs is a fasting mimetic. So for people who are doing keto and are restricting carbs to like below 20 total per day, close to 10, maybe zero even on zero carb, would you see autophagy in that situation?
1: Yeah, ketosis or a keto diet uh, mimics uh, a lot of the aspects of fasting. So you have uh, lower blood sugar and uh, lower insulin, and uh, you would see autophagy happening faster because of uh, keeping the liver glycogen somewhat limited. But uh, there are some other like unique things that you get also from fasting, such as uh, fasting. You know, eventually it's going to turn on like stem cells, and uh, it's also fasting is also going to promote like heat shock proteins, which. Um, get turned on if you're experiencing uh, heat for example and they also have like some other uh, unique benefits but um, yeah like you can essentially expect to maybe get some of the benefits of uh, fasting faster if you're doing a keto diet compared to if you're eating a high carb diet uh, or you're eating like a um, high amounts of uh, food but at the same time like um, you know eating protein itself is also like a direct uh, inhibitor of autophagy by turning on mTOR, which is the growth switch of the body. So even if you restrict carbs, then uh, you, you can still inhibit the autophagy if you um, turn on mTOR, and, which is then going to block autophagy. But if you're doing some aspects of timer-speed eating, then in the, in the fastest state, you would expect to get into autophagy uh, faster because of limited uh, liver glycogen.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm curious what you think about fasting, Overall and metabolic rate. I don't know if you saw anything on that when you were researching, but there seems to be some conflicting information out there depending on who you're listening to. You know, some fasting advocates say that fasting increases your metabolic rate. I think that may be true to an extent, but what I think more likely can happen with a lot of extended fasting is that just like caloric restriction, at some point, your body is intelligent. And it's going to say, well, if we don't have any food coming in at all here, we're going to have to slow things down a little bit. So logically, to me, it seems that a lot of fasting can probably lead to some metabolic rate slowdown. What do you think?
1: Fasting is like a stressor to the body and, uh, you know, stress itself will also uh, lower metabolic rate. And uh, during the fasting period, it is actually like a beneficial thing to have a slightly lower thorough functioning and metabolic rate because um, if you have like a very fast metabolism while fasting, then you're going to just burn through a lot of the muscle and go catabolic. The problem is when it becomes chronic. So if you're chronically stressed out and you're chronically energy restricted, then uh, eventually the body adapts to it, and you have like a, this low metabolism phenomenon where you're tired, you have low thyroid, uh, no libido, and uh, you're hit like a weight loss plateau, which itself isn't necessarily you know uh, cause, but the fasting it's because of also like the chronicness of the uh, calorie restriction. So uh, you can still do some fasting um, as long as you make sure that you get out of the fast in a way that kind of breaks the fast completely so to say so that if you're staying in a very low calorie state after the fast then of course the metabolism is going to eventually slow down so what I think is a very important thing to do or to one of the easiest things to prevent this uh, slow metabolism is to also ensure that you eat like enough protein uh, you eat enough calories in general as well as like a good spike in uh, insulin and blood sugar Is actually very beneficial for the thyroid. So the carbs and insulin they can help to produce the thyroid hormones. So you know this carb cycling is a good example of upregulating leptin and upregulating the metabolic rate and the thyroid functioning as to prevent uh, slowing down the uh, metabolism.
0: Do you think people can do that just by keeping their calories really high if they're doing that with fat if they're not eating carbs?
1: Yeah, like because um fat will also eventually spike incident, it does, so like at a very small amount, but it does, you know, eventually if you do it like a, maybe like a surplus of calories, then it will uh, eventually spike some incident, uh, because the body just gets the um, energy intake, uh, regardless of where it's coming from, Like maybe uh, some people may not get the desired response. So for them, they may want to try some carbs or or like, you know, protein can also do it. Like if you eat a surplus of protein, then some of it will eventually be converted into uh, glucose. So there are many, and you know, the same with fat, like some of the fat can also be converted into glucose through gluconeogenesis. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like carbs, but um, kind of this, the idea to get uh, a surplus of energy slightly and uh, the upregulate the thyroid functioning with uh, these calories.
0: Yeah, it's funny. So many years ago, I remember people talking about how, you know, the body needs carbs every day. And when you think about all the different substrates for gluconeogenesis that there are, you know, the glycerol in fatty acids, we really don't talk about it that much, you know, amino acids, pyruvate, lactate, you know, there's so many sources, your own obviously stored fat too but there's so many sources that your body can make glucose from it's kind of humorous to think the body can't survive without these exogenous carbs
1: right yeah like the human body is uh, just an adaptation machine and uh, we've evolved uh, under you know this physiological stress all the time whether that be the the temperatures or uh, food scarcity and the physical stress so yeah we're kind of uh, (laughs) we're built for this Uh, we're gonna supposed to kind of handle it
0: So if someone was asking you about fasting for weight loss, you want to advise them to make sure their metabolic rate doesn't slow. So you're saying make sure that calories are not restricted after, but then isn't there also the risk that say they do like a five-day fast and then they do a caloric surplus or try to eat a lot after the end of the fast like won't they just put that back on or like what are some of the ways that you think people can use fasting for weight loss without slowing metabolic rate and without like just putting it all back on
1: for sure yeah that can be a, a potential issue that uh, if you eat a surplus of calories with a slightly lower metabolic rate then yeah that you would uh be easier for you to uh store it uh, as a body fat but uh, for that like i wouldn't n- n- advise to go for a massive binge or something uh, i would start off from just eating maybe around your maintenance because uh that's where your body you know used to be uh, at uh, before and it uh, it's not going to because you don't need like a surplus of calories to get uh, the, the desired response you just need to, you know, turn on mTOR or, or, you know, shut down the autophagy process and uh, promote these other uh, growth factors in the body, which doesn't necessarily uh, require a surplus of calories.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really, really interesting, all the different ways that people use fasting. And I think you probably use it more for biohacking in general. So what are some of the benefits of incorporating that? I think you touched on a few of them, but how do you practice fasting yourself and what are you optimizing for with it?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I don't do like a very, this, uh super long fast. So I think the the kind of benefits do cap out around uh, like day three or something. So I, I don't really see a huge reason for um, like the most people to go beyond three days and i personally i have done like you know seven day fasts before uh but i on a regular basis i would just stick to maybe three days at max and i would have like a three day fast maybe a few times a year but on a daily basis i would have this time restricted eating where i you know compress my eating window and uh, i don't um because that 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 is um, in addition to the fasting benefits you also get the circadian rhythm um, benefits so that uh, you uh, you know fasting has been shown to benefit the circadian rhythms as especially like in, increasing energy um, metabolism and uh, maintaining uh, some aspects of this circadian rhythm robustness so you're uh, less vulnerable to circadian rhythm disruption and uh, you also maintain uh, better, like uh, sleep quality, so to say that if you're always eating all the time, then that, that has been shown to kind of uh, jeopardize some of the sleep quality and the circadian rhythms.
0: And one balance that I've been trying to strike right now is maximizing intermittent fasting and muscle protein synthesis. And <laughs> I found that I'm doing like three meals in like a 19 to 20 hours fasted and then i'll have my eating window four or five hours and i try to eat three times and but it's kind of tricky because i'm trying to trigger it as much as possible then it lasts like around two hours or something after that and just you know also trying to not be eating all the time it, you know it just depends what your goals are like you, you change things up and i i'm trying to build muscle right now so
1: trying yeah to keep that if you do want to build muscle then uh a longer eating window is definitely uh, very beneficial uh, because uh, your body does cap out at um, how much muscle protein synthesis it's going to stimulate within a certain meal. Uh, so that's why if you spread it out, you're going to get like multiple spikes throughout the entire day and you can keep your body in this uh, growth uh, mode. Well, like I think uh, if you're eating like a low carb diet, then you can kind of get away with a slightly longer eating window and still get a lot of the benefits. So uh, like a 20 hour eating window is not... Necessary for getting the you know longevity benefits from fasting, and uh, it's it's not like the most optimal thing for uh, muscle or protein synthesis so uh if I were to try to build muscle, then what I've found to be very useful in the past is just like the sixteen hour fasting window you sixteen hours fast and eight hours of the eating window. you can like pack three meals in there quite nicely, and uh it doesn't uh, jeopardize uh you know muscle strength or uh, muscle growth either
0: Yes. I agree. Now shifting gears a little bit, when we first met, you were interviewing me a bit about keto. I don't know if you're still doing that at all, or like maybe love to know your opinion on like where things have been going the last few years in carnivore and what you've been seeing out there. And like, what, what are you personally doing?
1: Yeah, well, uh, on most days, I'm still eating like a lower carb diet. Uh, it's not like full ketosis, I think, uh, because I'm, um, I think like I'm quite physically active and I'm metabolically flexible so I can get away with a slightly more carbs. So I'm not like worried about my carb intake, but I'm not eating like a high carb uh, diet either. So maybe like 50 to 100 grams of carbs is something on a daily basis. Uh, but mostly like, you know, still these low carb uh, foods, I do have like a few days where I do increase my carb intake to maybe like boost my metabolic rate or boost leptin or boost thyroid, uh, as well as to kind of deliberately kick myself out of ketosis. Uh, so I do like a cyclical keto uh, diet on most days. I kind of tr- try to regulate it based upon my physical activity. So if I'm resting, if I'm doing only like maybe some easy physical activity, then I'll stay low carb. If I have like a hard workout um, or something very intense, then I'll eat carbs. So I'll just always like fluctuate uh, back and forth.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And what do you do protein wise? Like what... Do you try to moderate it more or do you eat more protein?
1: Well, I, I do eat like a higher protein diet, definitely. And uh, there, I don't think there's like a real reason to restrict protein. Uh, so it's very beneficial for, you know, muscle growth as well as fat loss. It uh, burns more calories for digestion than other macronutrients. It's uh, more satiating. And uh, like the research about protein shortening lifespan is also pretty it's not very solid and uh, it, uh, it's taken out of context. So like for example, uh, one argument would be that uh, protein uh, shortens lifespan because it t- uh, increases IGF-1, which is associated with cancers and uh, aging. But well, my personal IGF-1 levels are very low, like uh, 100, <laughs> which is uh, actually lower than the reference range, um, despite me eating like a higher protein diet. Uh, so yeah, there's because I'm, 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 I'm not combining that high amounts of uh, protein with high amounts of carbs and a high eating frequency. So if I were to do like the bodybuilding diet where you eat six times a day with high protein and high carbs, then my IGF-1 would be probably a lot higher. Uh, but because I'm doing inward fasting, I'm not eating uh, a bunch of carbs, then the, the higher protein intake is uh, not going to affect these uh, longevity markers uh, in a negative way uh, because of, uh, you know, I'm suppressing the IGF-1 with fasting and the carb restriction.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just seems way, way worse to not be getting enough protein yeah. than to be
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> eating too much of it.
1: Yeah. Like a low protein diet is, um, uh, is going to lead to like muscle wasting and, uh, sarcopenia and, uh, yeah, just, uh, frailty. So you You definitely don't want to be eating like a low protein diet, uh, especially if you're older or if you're like uh, experiencing some immunosenescence or something.
0: I remember when I was vegetarian, like I could barely get my suitcase out of the overhead compartment. Like I was flying, I'd always have to get people to help me. Like I just felt frail. Um, My protein was so low back then and just, you know, prioritizing it. I gained muscle just from eating more protein. It's amazing. now going back to autophagy and exercise, what have you seen on that? And, you know, I've seen things saying that you can even get more autophagy from exercise than from fasting. So if you're like in more of a building mode and you're trying to maybe do less fasting, what are your thoughts on comparing the two and what have you seen with regards to exercise and autophagy?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like, um, like in, in regards to human studies, then I think there might be like more studies about uh, exercise increasing autophagy than fasting uh, uh, because fasting itself isn't like that researched. Uh, so exercise does increase autophagy like almost in like a dose dependent manner. Uh, so uh, there are studies showing that even like 30 minutes of this cardiovascular exercise increases some of these autophagy homes and other autophagy markers. Uh, but it does so like acutely. So the autophagy you get from exercise isn't going to last, you know, for hours upon end. It's only, going, it's only going to rise as you're doing the exercise and as like the physical stress increases and it pretty much uh, drops down after you stop exercising or it, or maybe stays elevated for maybe one to two hours after that, uh, which is great. And you do get like a boost in the autophagy process and some other benefits of the exercise. Uh, and uh, I do think, uh, you know, if you want to really get a massive dose of uh, like autophagy then exercise should be also definitely be a part of that strategy because you can do all the fasting uh, you want, uh, you know, or like, I would say like fasting for five days and being sedentary isn't like worth it. Uh, uh, if you're, you know, sedentary, whereas if you were to do exercise on a daily on a daily basis all the time and you're regularly fit, then the benefits of the additional exercise in terms of, overall fitness and like muscle mass and those things are probably more uh, healthier in the long-term sort of thing.
0: Yes. And it's amazing how much our bodies adapt to that. Like I know when I, whenever I do a five day fast, I just have no desire to do any movement. Like I can maybe go for a walk, but it's just not appealing. And I can feel my non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Like all my little movements, even my blinking will slow. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. So I really got me to thinking that of all the good that can come from a five-day fast, there are negatives to that too. And that is it really. What about, you know, just making sure you are actually fed fasting for part of the day and then being active all the time. It just seems healthier to do, but I'm, I only did those fasts three or four times a year, but just the idea of not moving at all and being in that energy conservation mode, it's just amazing how adaptable the body is. So if you can get it from doing more work and moving, that seems like it's going to be a better choice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think so. And, uh, you know, you don't need a five-day fast if you're already healthy and you're not overweight uh, and you have, like, good uh, uh, glucose uh, metabolism. So uh, those five-day fasts may be only uh, beneficial for someone who is, like, overweight and they can uh, handle it uh, more easily. Like, they have a surplus of energy and uh, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's always very dependent on the person. So if a person is already experiencing a higher amount of stress from, uh, like, exercise and um, and uh, other stressors, then uh, yeah, the fasting can definitely be uh, too much for them.
0: Yeah, there's like this overfunctioning, And one thing that I, I just see a lot of people relying on extended fasting for weight loss. And I hear a lot of them saying, I gain weight, and I put on fat really easily. And it almost seems to me that in a way, you would prime your body to store fat. Because you would put it in the scarcity mode where as soon as you have any food coming in, there's I don't know what the mechanism would be, but it would just like hold on to it, maybe cortisol or, or something that it would just prime you to hold it in, because your body thinks you're in like a famine,
1: yeah, yeah, like part of it can be because of the uh, lower metabolic rate and uh, they're having like smaller thresholds for uh, maintaining weight uh, but also like you know, there's some aspect of leptin resistance that could occur or like you, you just uh, can't stop eating after you break the fast. Uh, so you've been uh, depriving yourself and therefore you just uh, want to compensate for it. So there is um, both physiological factors as well as psychological factors that, that uh, can affect uh, the uh, end result.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about biohacking and what are some of your favorite biohacks? I know you've tried a lot of different ones throughout the years, but what are the ones that for you are like non-negotiables or things that you always prioritize?
1: Well, I think, well, it's not like a real biohack, but, you know, just making sure that your sleep is uh, good is uh, the most important thing uh, that uh, I personally want to focus on and other people should also do. Uh, so, if you're, you can all, you can follow the um, best diet in the world. You can also do all the biohacks, and none of those things are going to be uh, as effective as they could if your sleep is bad. So, uh, sleep is uh, kind of the foundation to health, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, like kind of that's where you build muscle, that's where you burn the most fat, that's also the time where you kind of process most of the esophages, So, yeah, it's a very important uh, time. Uh, So you don't really, for for sleep optimization, I think uh, the best things I've found is using like uh, blue blocking uh, filters or software or these glasses in the evening as to not uh, inhibit the production of melatonin before going to bed. So yet I found the most uh, benefit from just using that, uh, just uh, avoiding these bright lights, uh, artificial lights uh, in the evening.
0: Yeah, I did a podcast with Andy Mant recently on building... A business from scratch. And he mentioned you and how he approached you and talked to you about the technology and stuff and um, that you, yeah, you were really into it. And I know you talk a lot about sleep optimization. Are there certain things that you try to do year round, (laughs) like saunas, cold exposure, those kinds of things?
1: Yeah, I do take like the sauna almost every day and uh, i think uh, there's no like a seasonal thing that you f- have to follow in terms of the sauna or the heat it's a pretty good you know all the time and uh, with the colds uh, i do try to kind of ramp it up a little bit uh, before the winter like you know around this time of the year i'll do like more ice baths. but uh, during the summer itself is also a, a good thing uh, i don't do it like let's say all the time i would maybe do it. Uh, once a week, probably, or once or twice a week, uh, depending on on the situation. Uh, but the heat and the cold, I do pretty much uh, year round. Uh, some other things uh, that I do also year round would be, you know, exercise, uh, some intermittent fasting. Uh, and, but in terms of my diet, um, I al- I already do like a cyclical approach, so I don't I don't follow necessarily like a seasonal diet. Uh, I don't I don't feel like like the need to that I need to. Uh, eat keto during the winter and then they need to eat fruit uh, during uh, the summer or the the autumn. So I'll, because I will already doing the cyclical approach.
0: Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm curious of your thoughts on this because people talk about cold showers all the time as a biohack. And every time I see that I'm like, well, no, it's, it's like the research shows you have to be immersed at a certain temperature for like at least this much time, but people, seem to really think that like a 30 second freezing cold shower is giving you those, you know, beneficial effects. And I'm like, it probably is strengthening you mentally (laughs) to have to do that, but you can't compare it to like doing an actual ice bath or anything. Right.
1: Yeah. Like the cold shower, you may see like a relief in inflammation and uh, you may also, you know, uh, uh, increase like white blood cells which can be good for immune system and you can you can also get like the alertness and uh the focus from that but uh, yeah for like the more pronounced effects on uh like the way the way they treat uh like um, arthritis or neurodegeneration with cold therapy for that you need to get exposed to the cold for a bit longer than that uh and like for instance, to get like glutathione, they also probably need to be fully immersed uh, for at least like a minute or two uh, in, in a, like a colder water. But of course, like the cold can also have negative side effects. Uh, like uh, the cold probably has more negative side effects than um, than uh, the, the sauna or the exercise for that matter. So it can cause like uh, also like a low thyroid eventually. And it could like eventually also weaken the immune system if it becomes like an overbearing uh, stressor.
0: Yeah, cold immersion is just not one of those that I <laughs> really got into. Like I did it a couple if I'm at a place that has a cold pool, I'll be like, okay, I'll do it. But you know, I'm not buying a chest freezer or anything. It's just <laughs> you gotta pick and choose right. things that you like. I had an interesting question on my podcast. And I was curious on what your thoughts were on this, because I was just kind of thinking out loud on it. But someone asked if it's stressful to go in and out of ketosis, because the they had heard in a Facebook group, that it was stressful on the body to go in and out and their protein intake was fluctuating. So they were going in and out of ketosis. My answer was no, it's not stressful for the body. But if you're going in and out of deep ketosis, then you're going through proteolysis each time you're going to be breaking down protein and then going out of it and then going back in as opposed to just going into ketosis and staying in that. But eating higher protein could maybe buffer that proteolysis if you're eating a higher protein diet and that's what's making the person go out as opposed to it being carbs. But yeah, I was curious what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, in regards to like uh, muscle loss, then uh, you can surely just avoid it uh, by eating uh, more protein. And uh, because like if you do lose muscle by getting out of ketosis, then it might be because of uh, not necessarily because of getting out of ketosis, but because of eating less protein uh, and uh, eating too many carbs uh, for that. Like there's not... uh, ketosis is like more anti-catabolic than uh, being in like a glucose burning state but if you're eating enough protein then it doesn't matter because the protein itself is more uh, anti-catabolic than uh, either ketosis or uh, the carbs uh, in that sense uh, but is it stressful then um, it. i don't think it's uh, like a stressful thing to do it actually can be it can be a, like another example of this positive stress that if you swap in between carbs and ketones every once in a while then you maintain this metabolic flexibility and uh you don't have to go through like the keto flu uh, that often uh, because you're already used to swapping uh, back and forth it can be uh, stressful in the short term if you're like say like you've been doing keto for a long time, like uh, weeks or months, then it is true that your body kind of loses some of the ability to burn uh, glucose for fuel and it becomes slightly insulin resistant. So um, if you immediately break the ketosis with a bunch of carbs, then you will see just this uh, larger spike in your blood sugar that stays elevated for uh, longer than normally because the body isn't producing enough insulin to shuttle those uh, carbs into the right place. So that can be a stressful in the short term where you experience like a hyperglycemia for a few hours um, compared to having it come down uh, in in a faster manner. But you can avoid that also by doing uh, these uh, carb cycles uh, on a more frequent basis.
0: Yeah. I just had a really interesting experience because I did keto for like six years straight. And then in the summer I like I had been doing carnivore a couple of years and then the summer I brought carbs back in and I went as high as like 60, 70, around that much of carb per day, mostly from salads and vegetables and yogurt. And then last Monday I went back to carnivore and I went through like adaptation again. And it was so interesting because I didn't couldn't relate to a lot of that stuff people were talking about because I just started keto and like, didn't <laughs> look back for so long. I'm like, wow, like it, I had that like fatigue feeling. I got a headache, all of that. And then I got the mental clarity and energy back. And I'm like, oh, I like this more than what I was doing with the higher carb. So it's really cool to experiment and find what works for you. Like, I love that you don't get stuck in dogma at all. Like, you do your own thing and you, you know, you do a cyclical approach and you combine all these different biohacks, but it's what works for you and what you're optimizing for. But it's the experimentation of the biohacker that I love that, you know, I'm sure you're always like trying things out. Did you ever try out carnivore at all?
1: Yeah, I've tried it. Like, um, I didn't have like a long term, but uh, like a week or so. And uh, I can f- certainly find like a value uh, for a lot of people, especially in regards to like digestion problems and autoimmune issues. But like, is it is it like most people probably don't need to do it? Whether or not they want to do it is like a different topic uh, and uh, whether or not they want you should do it. Uh, so yeah, like uh, some people could do it, uh, for a long time, but, uh, yeah, like we don't know what, like what's going to happen in, in the long term. Like, I don't think it's not going to happen. Like not, not, nothing like a uh, bad is going to happen. Uh, but it's more of like a matter of, uh, if you avoid, let's say certain, you know, plant matter all the time, then, um, you probably will see like this, um, slight increase in sensitivity towards them as well. So it's kind of like this perpetuating cycle that you avoid, let's say these plants, Uh, you eat a carnivore and then you introduce those plants and you have like negative symptoms because you've been avoiding them and your body doesn't (laughs) able to handle them. And then you think it's a plants and you go back into the cycle. So like, you know, it depends on what kind of a diet the person wants to follow. If they, if they're willing to, you know, eliminate all plants for the rest of their life, then uh, uh, like, I'm not, I'm not someone to say no to that or stop them. Uh, But if they want to ever eat like any, some plants again in the future, then they probably should keep them in their diet, at least in some shape or form uh, on a cyclical manner.
0: No, that is so true. When I started adding plants back in, in July, I had a bunch of salad and cabbage and I had the worst stomach ache of my life. (laughs) Like it was like, like some kind of animal was like chewing its way out of my stomach. It was so freaking painful and I pushed through it. You know, I didn't go, oh, this means I'm allergic to plants or whatever. I pushed through it and then it was fine again. But for me, I was always bloated from like eating salad and vegetables. And I was like, I just miss that like super fast, satiety, no brain, like no counting things. It's harder for me to get full off of eating plants. So I just end up eating a lot of them. And then I'm like, oh, so bloated. <laughs> so
1: yeah, like a lot of the times, like, um, People experience these negative side effects from just the overconsumption of the plants. Um, like, you know, s- some studies, some studies, they, they s- or like, like case reports where the person dies to eating two kilograms of bok choy or something, which is like, who, like, no one really does that uh, aside from like a few special cases. And uh, sometimes people just uh, take either take like this very concentrated uh, polyphenol supplements or they uh, eat too many raw vegetables, especially. Like, yeah, I, I do agree, like, you probably don't want to be doing this raw smoothies and uh, huge salads. Uh, so yeah, it, there's always like a matter of, you can you can get away with a certain amount uh, where you don't get any negative side effects. but And if you exceed that amount, then that's where things get uh, problematic.
0: Yeah, I found that really interesting too with protein. I'm not sure if you found this, but I've been doing experiments in the last year where I did like four or five times my lean body mass in grams, like I went way up to like 250, 260. Grams of protein a day, and I found that although through the research obviously saw that there's no negative impact on like your organs or those kinds of things, but I found that I started to have like weird symptoms. And I, I think back to your point with carnivore, I don't think it's going to be necessarily like bad for people, but there are things whenever you do anything extreme that will potentially throw things out of balance. Like I think of all the heme iron <laughs> that if people who are eating just steak like there's got to be some shifts and things that if you're getting all that iron then how does that affect other metals and things but i'm not sure with protein how do you find your optimal amount for you and did you ever see negative side effects like when you were eating like higher amounts
1: i do think yeah you can you could uh overdo the protein as well like uh, some symptoms would be like if you have like a very high fasting blood sugar for out of no reason uh, because, you know, the the protein is being converted into blood sugar. And I don't think, like, there is a... I think it it is, like, slightly less harmful than maybe the the blood sugar from carbs, but it's still blood sugar, so to say. Eventually, the end product is the same, and it, can, it could uh, cause some problems uh, eventually. Uh, but uh, if I do eat, like, let's say, a large amount of protein, uh, well beyond uh, my own uh, requirements, then what I would notice is also maybe slight maybe like water retention or something uh, or inflammation uh, that, that that is probably the result of like this increased uh, methionine uh, and uh, homocysteine as a result of that as well, which uh, can cause like inflammation. So yeah, like if you're eating only like this methionine rich uh, sources of protein, uh, you know, primarily steak and lean leaner proteins, uh, then uh, you probably could run into some issues eventually. Uh, and, you know, if you want to avoid that, then you have to balance it out with a uh, glycine-rich uh, sources of protein, which would be like the nose-to-tail uh, approach uh, with organ meats and uh, the tendons and uh, ligaments. Uh, so, yeah, I, I notice less of an effect um, if I increase uh, the, the glycine uh, content uh, from uh, of my food.
0: Yeah, I've always been a big proponent of organ meats. I just think logically it makes sense. You know, can you imagine humans like hunting an animal and then just like taking the, the steak and like leaving the rest, you know, right. it, that would never <laughs> happen, right? Yeah. In survival mode, like you would eat everything and you see it with animals in the wild. Like they don't just, you know, take the guts and like leave or whatever. You'd be eating nose to tail. I'm a huge opponent of that. So let's talk a bit about your new book. What is it about? What have you learned? And yeah, where can people find it?
1: Yeah, well, um, the new book is uh, Stronger by Stress, and uh, it talks about uh, hormesis and uh, stress adaptation. So um, we, it covers a lot of the same things that we talked already, like uh, fasting, uh, keto, uh, uh, carb cycling, uh, exercise, heat, the colds, uh, but also kind of implements more of this uh, recovery aspect of how do you optimize your sleep, uh, how do you recover from the other stressors, like you know work stress, um, psychological stress, uh, as well as, uh, you know, EMF or radiation, how do you kind of, can you kind of implement the, those things into your life as well? Uh, so, yeah, most, the biggest thing that I've kind of maybe discovered during the writing of this pro- book was that uh, uh, like, you, you probably need to, uh, let's say, focus as much on the recovery as uh, you do on the exertion. So you kind of have to exert yourself physically and kind of stretch your uh, comfort zone, but um, always make sure that you uh kind of implement as much recovery as well in, in, in the example of, you know, uh, sleeping, uh, getting the essential nutrients, uh, heat and so, he, heat and um, hot, uh, the cold exposure. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's always like a balance between the stress and the recovery.
0: That's really key finding. And it's really important to talk about, I think, and we stretch ourselves so thin <laughs> these days, trying to do everything. There's so much pressure to be successful And I know in particular in North American culture, there's like a real drive to be successful above all. Do you find that there are any cultural differences for you where you're from? Do people, I know that there are cultural norms, like in certain parts of the world, you know, I think it, I'm not sure if it was Amsterdam, the Netherlands where people prize more just fitting in and being average as opposed to like standing out and being successful. Like what, what kind of cultural milieu did you find yourself in? And you've obviously been driven to succeed. So I'm not sure if that comes from your culture or from yourself.
1: Well, like Estonian culture, isn't um, this uh, hustle mentality or this hard, hard uh, achiever mentality uh, as opposed to like the States um, where the Estonian culture would be more, you know, this, like a down-to-earth uh, try to do what you love type of culture uh, so some people do you know definitely uh, pursue success but um, the like the average person uh, wants to just uh, do a life or live a life where they do what they love and uh, you know spend time with the people that they like uh, at least what that's what I think uh, so that's a, like a slight uh, difference uh, for sure
0: I find that in check too. That is more the mentality is like spending time with your family and, you know, just doing well for you and yourself and your community, maybe doing what you love. It's like a really, really strong values. I'm not saying that they aren't in North America, but I know that there's more of an individualist mindset there. And here I find it's more, there's more balance. Like things are closed on Sundays. You know, it's like, it's the day to be with your family, not to be shopping. And when I first came here, I was like, why are they closed on Sundays? Like that's the day when I want to go do shopping. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's interesting what the cultural kind of norms drive that. So finding balance, I think in some countries like this might be easier. I noticed it here, like on Friday afternoons, people joke, like, it's like everyone leaves at noon and goes home or they go to their cottage. And that's like just a big part of the lifestyle. Whereas in North America, it's like you just work, work, work so hard during the week. And then on the weekend, you're like in your pajamas on the couch because you have no energy left because you're driving so hard all the time. So that balance and recovery and like self-care sounds like it's really important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, people kind of um, uh, cherish, uh, you know, nature as well and cherish uh, downtime or yeah spending time with family. It's a maybe maybe it has to do with just the environment as well or um, like the history of the kind of people here don't uh, want to take, you know, life for granted or something uh, because of like history. And uh, yeah, I think that some, some differences.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. And I know there's definitely a lot of people in North America who love to be in nature and love their families and being with them and church and all those things. But I do think there's a difference in like the drive where being successful, everyone is really, really after that. And I do see people getting more burnout and more going after success sometimes at the cost of other aspects of their life, which in the end, you know, may not make them happy. Like I know (laughs) I used to work in the stock market and I was, I enjoyed it, but I didn't have like a lot of meaning and passion in it because I was just making rich people richer. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, it wasn't like satisfying, but doing what I love, you know, and shifting out of that makes me happy. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool to recognize that. So the book is about all the different hormesis and stress and, you know, how to maybe balance like positive stress or stress
1: one of uh, the ideas of the book is that you can kind of increase your ability to tolerate different kinds of stressors if you gradually build it up uh, progressively like you know with exercise that uh, you can't really, you know, lift 100 kilograms uh, on your first day at the gym. You can. You have to you kind know, start off at your level and then gradually increase the weights. And going through these cycles of, you know, exertion, you get, you know, doing the exercise, you actually get weaker from the stress, and then you bounce back. You get stronger. You supercompensate, uh, but then you can you exert yourself again, and you kind of up and down, up and down, until you kind of reach a higher level of this ability to, to tolerate the stress. And uh, the, the stress can be, uh, you know, different kinds of stressors, uh, you know, environmental stressors, as well as uh, physical stressors. Of course, there are things that don't have this uh, hormetic effect, like what I, was, what I would say is like, you know, vegetable oils or <laughs> these are processed seed oils. Those things probably don't have like a hormetic effect that you, you should uh, try to avoid them as much as possible. Uh, as well as like environmental toxins, uh, you know, plastics and uh, xenoestrogens, those things are also probably not something that have a beneficial effect. But other things generally do appear to have um, this hormetic effect, like exercise, fasting, saunas, uh, as well as like radiation and hypoxia and uh, even like sleep deprivation in the short term could have like a small uh, hormetic effect in the in, in the in the brain.
0: Interesting, that's fascinating. What is the name of that book and please tell us where we can get it and also the other book that you're working on the immunity fix yeah
1: the uh, hormesis book is a uh, stronger by stress and you can get it on amazon uh the new book that i'm actually uh co-authoring with uh, dr james the Nicolantonio antonio is uh the immunity fix which is also co- is uh coming out this week uh in uh, the end of october so yeah it's, it talks about uh, the immune system and um, how do you strengthen it, how do you like, fight off different uh, pathogens, as well as kind of implements uh, with the idea of kind of improving your metabolic health uh, at the same time.
0: Well, the last thing I want to ask you, for anyone out there listening who feels inspired by all this book writing, what's a tip that you can give them if they want to write a book? Because I know you've written a few and you've written them in like very short time frames. And that's an amazing skill.
1: Hmm. Uh, Well, uh, I think uh, it's uh, the the way I write books is to kind of enclose myself (laughs) into like a book writing mode. So I'll just uh, I'll uh, stay home for the entire month. I'll just keep writing uh, every day and uh, kind of immerse myself into the world of like, I'm constantly thinking about what I'm writing about and uh, researching the topics uh, on at the same time. So I am in the world of the book that I'm writing uh, almost, you know, all the time uh, and once I get out of it then, then i start editing and, uh, and uh, making adjustments, but essentially I want, maybe the best thing to do is just avoid these distractions that could uh, distract you from writing the book. Like, um, A lot of, uh, you know, other people or outside events, uh, traveling, uh, distractions, all those things, they're not uh, in the the process of the book writing itself. Uh, It's best to uh, just uh, focus on the book itself and uh, not uh, get uh, taken away by the distractions.
0: Yeah. Do you set yourself like, I'm going to do this many pages every day? Do you give yourself like little goals like that?
1: Yeah, like uh, I I may set like... uh, a goal for a day. Like I'll finish just this chapter or I'll end at this subsection or whatnot. Uh, but generally I try to focus more on like a time. So I'll write from this uh, morning AM until, you know, the noon I'll take a break or something and then I'll finish off later in the day. Uh, so yeah, it kind of fluctuates, but generally I do set some uh, like mini uh, milestones.
0: And I forgot, I was also going to ask you, what is your morning routine like when you're writing and when maybe when not, but what is your sort of average morning routine like?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) I used to have like a slightly longer morning routine where I would like meditate and take a cold shower and go for a walk. But nowadays, I'll just kind of wake up, I may like wash my face. But then I'll just start writing, basically. So I don't, I don't, I don't need like a motivation to start working or I don't need a fancy morning routine to put me in the right uh, state of mind. So I'll just wake up and I can start working.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I find for me when I'm writing, the morning is my sacred time. And I don't want anything else like email or Instagram or anything taking my attention, at least until I've done an hour or two of that like deep work. And then there's no other time of the day that I'm like as focused. And I find being in Prague helps because when I wake up, everyone (laughs) back home is sleeping. So I, even if I do check things, like everyone's kind of asleep. So I have the morning hours where I can really get in that flow. And then in the afternoon, like, I know it's not going to be that, but I know some people like to write late at night, you know, there's like less distractions or, but it sounds like you do in the morning as well.
1: Yeah, I also like I'm like a morning person. That um, I like to get it over with uh, first thing in the morning. <clears throat> sort of said. Like if I if it's in the evening, then uh, like I'll I may feel rushed, and I don't ever want to be like rushed. Uh, I want to, you know, direct the course and uh, direct the uh, pace at myself.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, can we? I guess I was going to ask if you're going to be at speaking at any events or things <laughs> out of habit, but. Yeah, are you doing any events coming up online or outside of that? Or what can people look out for from you other than the books?
1: Yeah, I think, well, there's not going to be any physical events for this year. uh, But uh, I am like speaking on Paleo FX. They they do it uh, virtually this year, I think. And uh, other events, uh, not not that I can think of at the moment. Uh, Yeah, that will be like the movie for the rest of this year.
0: Congratulations. That's really awesome. It's such a huge event. So very, very cool. And congrats on all the books. That's the third book, right?
1: Yes, I'm going to them.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, Same, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. I really enjoyed all the topics that we got to cover and I really respect the deep research that you do. So thank you for being on and sharing this with us. And I'll put links to all of your your two new books so people can go and find those and check them out.
1: Yeah, thanks for it's a good talking with you and uh yeah, got to catch up.
0: Awesome.